turn to Romans chapter 4. I'd like you to, for just a minute, want you to consider some of the great discoveries in our world. I mean, just, just for instance, think about how different your life would be if we had not figured out how to generate and use electricity and all the millions of devices that use electricity. I mean, just how different would today look? I mean, it would be completely different. But, of course, electricity is something that we use all the time. Or consider uh, a guy by the name of Louis Pasteur in the 1860s. He was actually doing experiments with bacteria, and at that point, they didn't actually know where disease came from and how it got transferred. But he actually started looking at this bacteria and finding that these microorganisms, they actually transferred disease. And not only did he figure out how to tr- that the disease got transferred, he actually figured out how you could kill it, you know, by using heat or a disinfectant. I mean, you know, I mean, today, we just kind of whip out the old... By the way, someone coughed when they uh, came into church and shook my hand here, so... You know, we do this because why? I'm not, I'm not a germaphobe or anything like that, right? But we, we know that disease gets passed that way, and so we want to keep clean. You know, like doctors, surgeons, before then, they didn't clean their instruments or even their own hands. And millions of people, uh, billions of people died. Then there was a guy by the name of Alexander Fleming. He was the first guy that came up with the first antibiotic, penicillin. You know, before that, you get these infections, things like strep throat. Guess what happened to you? you would likely would die. Of course, antibiotics has changed and revolutionized our world. And if you look at, in 1953, those two scientists that came up with DNA and actually discovered that helix, double helix structure, I mean, even now are just starting to realize how fascinating it is what DNA, not only understanding and discovering, but understanding diseases that someday may actually lead to cures for very significant issues that we're facing. And then there's x-rays. Anybody know when x-rays were actually developed? 1895. Think about how medicine has been transformed by that. Or just even like microwaves or microwave ovens. Some of us couldn't cook apart from a microwave oven, right? But now, I mean, it's just like, I can't live without one, right? Smartphones, all of these things, they have totally revolutionized our world. But the greatest discovery in the world actually revolutionizes our lives. The greatest discovery in the world is how a person could truly know God. And how is it that a person could truly experience and discover this amazing uh, revolutionary truth? Well, if you want to know, all you need to do is open your Bible to Romans chapter 4. If you want to experience the greatest discovery in the world, you're going to want to lock in to what's revealed in chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. And you're going to find that Paul in his writing, as we're making our way through the book of Romans... He is going to cite Abraham and David. And he does so because he wants us to see the basis and the blessings of right relationship with God. First of all, let me just tell you the basis of right relationship with God. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Paul writes, What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, has found? What did Abraham discover? What is the great discovery that Abraham made that totally revolutionized his life. Now, once you reference Abraham, if you come from a Jewish background, you instantly refer to Abraham as the father of faith. He was the one who, in which it, the people of Israel find their origins. In fact, God made a significant promise to Abraham. After he called him out of Ur of the Chaldees, 
he actually makes this promise. You can find it in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. He says, listen, Abraham, I'm going to do this for you. I am going to make you a great nation. I am going to give you a land. And I am, through you and your family, going to bless all the families of the earth. I'm going to do that for you. Now, when you referenced Abraham, the Jewish mind automatically thought that Abraham was made right with God because he actually followed the law. He was made right with God because he was a righteous individual. He did what God would say, I find you to be approving and I approve you and I'm declaring you right because you actually are righteous. Now, if you've been with us and we're going through the book of Romans, in chapter 3, where we spent last week, beginning in verse 21, Paul is saying something very different than that. In fact, if you weren't here last week, you need to probably go to the website and listen to this message because this is kind of the apex of the book of Romans. He said in verse 21, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. How God not only makes people right, but the actual act in which he does so. He says, That's been witnessed by the law and the prophets. Or look at verse 28. Paul writes, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And if you were to ask people today, how was a person made right with God in the Old Testament? What would most people say? Well, they, uh, they followed the law. They did what God had said, and therefore, then God saves them. He makes them right. But is that what Abraham discovered? Well, he says in verse 2, he says, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. If Abraham is made right by his doing good works and following the law, you know what? He can brag about it, because guess who did it? He did it. But the most important question that you could ever ask is found in verse 3. For what does the scripture say? I want you to make a, a mark by that verse, and, or maybe even underline that question. Paul doesn't say, what does the religious authority say? What does the tradition of, of Israel say? He says, but what does the scripture say? That is the question that you need to ask. It's not what a church says or a particular denomination or a pastor or some sort of professor. And listen, I've, I've said this before and I'm going to say it again. Don't you take my word for it. I will tell you, I give myself fully to the study of the word to present to you exactly what the scriptures say. I study it out in the original. I pray about it. I read a lot about it because I absolutely want to present to you the truth of the word. Whether it be popular or unpopular, whether it goes with the grain of society or literally cuts against it. But I'm telling you, I would never intentionally mislead you, but don't you take my word for it. You examine the scriptures yourself. What does the scripture say about how a person is made right with God? And look what he does in verse 3. He quotes Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. It says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. You see, the Jewish people thought that Abraham followed the law, and that's how he made, was made right with God. But Paul says, actually, if you look at what is written in the law, Abraham believed, and it was credited. It's a, it's a term that's used in accounting or in economics. It literally means his, his account was credited with righteousness. Now, let me give you a little background on Abraham. First of all, uh, when he was born, his parents named him Abram, okay? It literally means exalted father. 
And God calls Abram, and I want you to go out of the Ur of the Chaldees, and I want you to take you, and he takes him to this promised land, this land of Israel, and he makes him this great promise that you're going to be a blessing, and through your family, you're going to have a, be a blessing to all the families of the earth. And that's all great and good. There's just one major problem. You know what the problem was? He married a woman by the name of Sarai, and he and Sarai could have no children. Every Father's Day, exalted father has how many children? Zero. Okay? He doesn't have kids. And yet he's got this great promise. And he, you know, and he was a good guy. He, he followed God. He, he did what he was supposed to do, but uh, didn't really live a perfect life. I mean, if you just read through the Old Testament, um, even though he would defeat enemies, when he felt like he was facing an army or a situation that like, this is certainly more than I can handle and probably more than God can handle. So he, would, he had a propensity to then break into line. And he did it on multiple occasions. Uh, he wanted to trust God. He actually wasn't into idol worship and actually set all that stuff aside. But uh, when it came time to a famine, he's like, you know what? I'm not sure how God's going to deal with this. I'm going to move down to Egypt. And he does. And he settles in with God's enemies. They're experiencing prosperity. He, that's what he did. He wasn't a perfect guy. And uh, there's something else you need to know about Abram. He had a nephew by the name of Lot. What you need to remember about Lot is that Lot was a lot of trouble, okay? I mean, the guy, I don't know what your nephews are like, but I mean, Lot, could, he was so self-centered and very selfish, and it was always about him and like how Lot could get the best, and Abram worked with this guy, and even in so much of a situation is that Lot gets himself captured, and there is this battle of the kings, Lot is apprehended, and Abram goes after his nephew, and he goes after him, and he rescues him. And in Genesis 15, you find that Abram is like, he's, 80, he's about almost 85 years old. He's got this great promise that uh, he's going to be this great blessing. He's going to have this great family. He has no kids. His wife is now in through menopause. There's like, there's no hope. It's physically impossible. There's no way that we're going to have kids. That means my estate is going to go to my head servant, Eleazar. And he's processing this. In fact, he's asking God in Genesis 15 to be, he's like, you know, are you going to protect me? What's going to happen? Because these kings, they're going to get pretty mad and they could destroy me. And then it's in this time where, where Abram's telling God in, the, in this vision, I can't, I don't, have a, I don't have kids. And God says, I want you to look up into the sky and I want you to see all the stars. Abram, can you count them? He says, God reveals to him, listen, I am going to give you your descendants are going to be more than the stars of the heavens. And Abraham, it says, as recorded in verse 3 here in Romans 4, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He didn't believe that, well, okay, God exists. Lots of people believe that God exists. Do you know that? Even the demons believe and they know that God exists. But they're not believing in him. They believe that he exists. That's not what Abram was doing here. He literally believes in the Lord. He believes in Yahweh, the personal God. He trusts him. He has confidence in him. He takes him at his word. He has faith. He trusts that God is going to do what he says. And he believes personally in God. Now, you know, if we were uh, writing the story, we would probably kind of do it a little bit differently. We'd have like, man, this is really cool. Abram believes God, God takes him to the promised land, and God blesses him. And we like this. We like the idea, we obey God, God blesses us. That's how it works. We feel pretty comfortable with that system. 
But God doesn't want some sort of arrangement where like, okay, you obey me and I do good things for you. God wants depth. He wants relationship. He wants faith. He wants you to know him personally. He doesn't want to be like this sort of exchange. You do these things and I'll do some nice things for you. He wants our hearts to trust him fully. And that's what Abram does. He believed God and God literally credits him as being righteous. And that's really what happens in the Old Testament. How are people made right with God? Through following good works? No. By the way, when did, when did the law come about? 600 years after Abraham. The law wasn't even around. And yet the Jewish people thought, well, Abram was such a righteous guy that he followed it even though it hadn't been revealed. No, it hadn't even been revealed. Abraham was made right with God by faith. And you know how people are made right with God in the Old Testament? By faith in God. In fact, when God gives the law, the law shows that we're sinners, that we have missed the mark, that we're selfish, that we really don't want God to be the center of our lives. All of that is sin. And at the same time, it's through their sacrifices that starts showing them that the one who really will make things right with me is a Messiah who will be a perfect lamb. And there are prophecies that start coming, like Isaiah 53, that he's going to be pierced through for our transgressions. Or you've got Micah that actually says he's going to be born in Bethlehem. Or Zechariah, and they're going to look upon him whom they've pierced. All of this points to a coming one. And their faith is in God who provides a redeemer. Now, he goes on to say, uh, when you look at this, now look at this, verse 4. If... Now, to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as, as what is due. He says, if you work, then you receive a wage. That's not grace. That's, that's what you're due. You earn that. So some of you have jobs. Is that correct? Right? How many of you actually get paid for your jobs? Wow. Hardly any. This is, wow. This, really, you guys work for free. How's that working for you, huh? It doesn't, right? What does it look like? You get paid, what, every other week, every week, once a month? Does it look like this? Your boss comes in. Gather around, employees. Gather around. Christmas has come, and I'm going to give you great gifts. And he starts giving you these checks, which happens to be the direct compensation for the, what you agreed. And he's like, hey, there you are. You know, it's to, from, it's like Christmas all over again. Is that what it looks like? No. They hand you a check, and you know why? Because you earned it. If you perform the functions of the job, you have agreed upon the conditions of your employment. If you've done it, you're paid, you earned it, you deserve it, you got it. If that's how it is to be made right with God, you earn it, you perform what you're supposed to do, you follow the law, guess what? Then salvation isn't by grace. Paul's wrong, right? No. If, if salvation isn't by grace, guess what? There is no need for a savior because in actuality, you earn your way with God. But that's not how it works. He says, verse four, now the one who works his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But look at verse five. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. The one who does not work, 
That is the one, if they will believe in God, they take God at his word, they believe in Christ, do you know that as an ungodly person, you are literally declared right with God? All the righteousness of Christ's perfect life is actually put under your account because God is the one who has done the work, not you. And this is exactly what Jesus said. Jesus said, you know what? I have not come to call the righteous to repentance, but sinners. Do you remember that? I've not called the people that have cleaned up their act and they look like they're real self-righteous and they got it all together. I've come to call the ungodly. I've come to call sinners. I've come to call those who have missed the mark, those who have walked away from God, those who treat God poorly, those who blaspheme his name, those who live unrighteous, ungodly lives. I've come to call them, and I'm going to accomplish their salvation. You see, this is the great promise of the gospel, that God justifies the ungodly. When you receive money, it's for one of two reasons. You either earned it, or it was a gift to you, right? You either earned it and you were paid off, or it was a gift. It didn't matter what you did. You could have been the most horrible grandson, but your grandmother gave you money. You remember that? Why? It was a gift from her heart to you. You need to know that salvation, justification to be declared right with God, redemption, it's a gift. You can't purchase it. You can't earn it. You can't keep it through your good works. You can only receive it. And what God does with Abraham is he establishes, this is how you relate to me. I take the initiative and I'm the great provider. You receive by believing. I am going to provide you the riches of relationship with Christ, but all you do is you believe. You let that sink in because that goes counter to what most people think. They think you've got to earn it and you've got to keep it. Now, when he says... But to the one who does not work, don't think that God is esteeming laziness. Like, oh, God likes really lazy people. Actually, he addresses those issues like in Proverbs and and some other places in the New Testament. But what he's saying, when it comes down to relationship with me, it's all about my grace. I provide it fully and completely. I initiate, I provide, you merely trust, and you receive. And and he says, he, he justifies the ungodly. So you don't come to God and say, man, the reason you ought to let me into your kingdom is because I've really cleaned up my act. You, you hear people talk this way, especially like at funerals. Man, they were really a good person. They did a lot of nice things. They were really faithful in their church attendance. And what they're doing is they're saying, those activities warrant that God ought to let them in, that God ought to make sure that they're going to be in his presence forever. You need to understand that has nothing to do with your salvation. It's not about how good you are. In fact, it's about how great God is in providing your salvation. And you may be wicked and ungodly. If you are, I've got really good news for you. Christ has paid it all. And he justifies the ungodly. If you will literally believe and trust in him like Abraham. You know, it's interesting, Dan... Dane Ortland, he, uh, he says that Christianity is kind of like the unreligion. I want you to listen to this. He says Christianity is the unreligion. It turns all other religion, religious instincts on their heads. The ancient Greeks told us to be moderate by knowing our inclinations. The Romans told us to be strong by ordering our lives. The Buddhism tells us to be disillusioned by annihilating our consciousness. Hinduism 
tells us to be absorbed by merging our souls. Islam tells us to be submissive by subjecting our wills. Agnosticism tells us to be at peace by ignoring our doubts. And moralism tells us to be good by discharging our obligations. But it is only the gospel that tells us to be free by acknowledging our failure. Christianity is the unreligion because it is the one faith whose founder tells us to bring not our doing, but our need. Do you know what you and I bring to this relationship? We bring ungodliness and sin. And just so you understand that salvation is all of God, he provides it all. And it's yours if you will truly, like Abraham, believe in God. It is the basis of right relationship with God. It is believing and having faith in God and his promise. Now, as soon as we say that, I'll just show you how human nature works. Man, we're made right with God by faith. Oh, no, I don't know if I have enough faith. I I have some faith, but I don't know if I have enough faith. And so what happens, we start working ourselves up, and we start asking ourselves, is my faith strong enough to really save me? Do I have enough? It's like we could like measure it like some sort of thermometer, like my faith is rising, but I don't know if it's enough. And we kind of think this way. Friends, that is completely missing the point. The issue isn't how much faith you have. Your salvation is done and accomplished by who or what? Your faith? No. Your salvation is accomplished by Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross, Romans 3, 21 through 31. It's not the issue of how much faith you have. The issue is that Christ has provided salvation. And if you will just believe, trust in him, his righteousness is brought over and transferred to your account, just like the text says. Look at verse 5. This is extremely good news for people like me and likely you. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. If you think that you've got to clean up your act first, and then God's going to accept you, you have missed the gospel. You come as you are with your sin, all your bad behavior and your bad attitudes, your self-centeredness, and you repent and you cast yourself on the mercy of God. And if you believe in him, he gives you the righteousness of Christ. Now, we're trying to come to terms with this and understand this. This is a guy by the name of Michael Horton. He, uh, I was reading about his uh, trip that he took after his junior year in college. He went to Europe with some friends. And as it would be on his trip, he ran out of funds way before he ran out of trip, okay? Kind of sound familiar? Maybe some of you had those experiences with your kids or even personally. And so uh, he's out of money. He had debts. Things were racking up, and he, he decided to call home. Now, like today, and maybe you've experienced this, you might just get a very simple text, you know, like, no mun, no fun, your son. Bing, bing, right? Right? You get that little message? And, you know, you could reply, too bad, so sad, your dad, right? You could do that, right? And you, you could, but Michael's parents, the, the Hortons, they said, you know what, we're going to be merciful to our son. And so what they did is they actually wired a bunch of money into his account so he could pay off his debts. In fact, they gave him extra for him to live on to actually finish his trip. And he, he talks about this experience, and he go, and listen to what he had to say. So he said, 
Now, was this money, which I was going to draw daily as I needed, strictly speaking, my money? Well, actually, no, it really wasn't my money. It belonged to my parents. Nevertheless, because they had transferred it into my account, it was my money. My account was now filled with money I had not earned, but which was mine to use nonetheless. That's how it works with God. That's what we're all overdrawn. The wages of sin is death. Christ has actually died on our behalf. He's redeemed us, and he has transferred all of his righteousness into our account. Our sin got it transferred to his account. He pays for it. We are paid up in full. We have the righteousness and the riches of relationship with Christ. God sees us as forgiven and fully right with himself because of the virtues of Christ. That is an amazing news. That is the best news. That is the greatest discovery of the world, that a man or a woman is made right with God on the basis of faith. Remember when you had to pay with cash at the gas station? Some of you remember that. Some of you. Remember how that was? If you wanted to buy gas, you had to pay cash, right? You hand over the money. Now, guess what? You don't have to do that anymore. In fact, you may have discovered that you don't even have to go to the gas station to gas up anymore. You can send one of your kids. Like you can send your daughter. And all you do is you put this little plastic card on there. It's got your name on it. And you send her to the gas station. And what she does... She drives up there, and she can't afford gas. I mean, look at I mean, she doesn't make that kind of money. And it's going to get worse, not just to throw terror into your mindset, but it probably is going to get worse, right? And she can't afford gas at that end. But, but she's got a card, and it's in your name, and she's got credit, and all of your vast wealth, right, has now been bestowed upon her. And she takes that card in your name, and she is able to make purchases. Well, guess what? That's what God has done with us. He has actually credited the righteousness of Christ in our life. And we function and we enjoy a relationship with him by virtue of all that God has done for us. Do you know the basis of right relationship with God is? It's having faith in him. In the Old Testament, they were looking to one. Even their sacrifices that were made were always pointing to one who was going to be the once-for-all sacrifice. They were symbolic, and they're representative, and they were looking forward. But do you know for us, in the New Testament era, we're looking back to the perfect sacrifice that was made by Christ. And you and I are made right with God when we have faith in him, when we truly, genuinely believe in him. But let me just tell you also some of the blessings not only is that the basis of how we're made right with God, but there's significant blessings. And what, God, what Paul is going to do now is that he is going to reference David. Now, in Jewish law, you could prove something by having two or three witnesses. And remember in 321, Paul says both the law and the prophets, they actually witness that a person is made right with God on the basis of faith. So he shows us from the law, Genesis is the first book of the law, the, the law is the first five books. He shows us from Abraham's life, you're made right with God by belief. Now he is actually going to show us from David, who's referred to as a prophet in, in the New Testament, and he's going to show us that David himself understood this principle and received the blessings of being made right with God by faith. So look what he says, verse 6. Just as David also speaks of the blessings on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Now, who's David? David is Israel's greatest king. I mean, this guy was awesome. He not only established the kingdom, he expanded it. He established peace. 
He actually established the city of Jerusalem. He actually brought the Ark of the Covenant. He is the one who received the promise that from you, the Messiah is going to come. You're going to have a son that will reign forever. Man, he was an awesome king. If anybody could be bragging, it would certainly be David. But when I say David's name, you're like, yeah, yeah, I remember all that king stuff. I remember the great things. Yeah, yeah. But there's some, a few other things that I remember about David's life. He was also a really bad guy. He committed adultery with one of his best guy's wives. And then to cover it all up, he conspired to have that guy murdered. You know, if anybody who's a guy who was a significant sinner, David would qualify. And David, after he was confronted with his sin, he became completely broken before God. And in his great humiliation, he wrote Psalm 51 and Psalm 32. If you want to look, see what brokenness before God looks like, just read those psalms. And in Psalm 32, he actually begins by establishing that he knows that man is made right with God on the basis of faith. And that God provides significant blessings for those, not because their life is perfect, but because God is perfect. And so in Psalm 32, he starts writing about the, how blessed this kind of person is. And that's what you find in verses 7 and 8. Right after verse 6, when he speaks of David, he had also found that God credits righteousness apart from works, he starts quoting Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. And he says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Let me tell you one of the great blessings of being made right with God, that your sins are forgiven. You don't have to advertise them. Chances are not a lot of you have committed adultery and murder in the same season, right? But I can assure you all of us are significant sinners, right? Starting with the guy that's standing up here this morning. We are all ungodly. But one of the great blessings of being made right with God by faith is that we know that we are forgiven of our sins. And you're going to find this principle. Generally, the people who love and worship God the greatest are the ones that have realized the greatness of God's forgiveness in their lives. Remember uh, Jesus? Yeah, he was eating with this guy, Simon the Pharisee, and Simon was ripping on him in his head about like, Man, if this Jesus was a prophet, he'd know that this woman's a terrible sinner, you know? She's bad news. Remember, Jesus had to help the guy understand, listen, you know why she's uh, washing my feet with her hair and tears? Because he, she who's been forgiven much loves much. And you're going to find that. When you realize how much you've been forgiven of, there's a, there's a sense of worship and delight in your life. And you love God and that's what he's saying here. You know what? Yeah, I am a significant sinner. He doesn't say, you know, because I've obeyed God, that's why I know that I'm forgiven. He knows that he's forgiven by virtue of what? That God is the one who forgives, and he does so by virtue of faith. He believes that there's going to be a promised sacrifice. He doesn't earn it. He doesn't deserve it. And he certainly doesn't keep it. God provides it. He believes it. And in his brokenness, he has this assurance that he is forgiven. You need to know something. Your position with God, if you believe in Christ, is absolutely secure. 
no matter what you've done, have are doing presently, or even do in the future, could ever take that away because salvation is all of God. Now, your condition in this life, yeah, I can tell you, you sin, there are going to be implications in your relationships and your circumstances. Please don't just try me out like, we'll find out. Some of you are experiencing pretty serious scars. But let me tell you one status that has never changed. You believe in God. You really believe. You are always seen positionally right with him. And I'll tell you what. Our identity in Christ frees us from being paralyzed by the past. You don't have to be cowering away. You need to know this. There is more grace in God's heart than there is sin in your past, in your present, and even your future. Is that not awesome news? You see, that's the blessings that come with being made right with God by virtue of faith. You have forgiveness of sins, but let me give you one other major blessing. You can have joy in God. Where does that come from? It comes by being declared right by God by virtue of faith. Do you see in verses 7 and 8, how do those sentences begin? What's the key word there? See it? Verse 7? Verse 8? What is the word? Blessed. I think one of our junior high kids got it. Good. All right. Blessed. That's right. For the rest of you who didn't hear, the word is blessed. What does that mean? I don't know. It's a religious word, man. People say, be blessed. Blessed you. You know, and that, but what does it mean? It, it speaks of happiness, joy. You see, God wants us to experience the fullness of joy, and there is no happiness apart from God. If you really want joy in your life, you know where it's found? It's found in knowing and believing God like Abraham and David and trusting in him. And even if, and even because you're sinners, because of what God has done, you can have joy in life. And what happens is there's a a reason for real happiness and joy. We don't have to be cowering because of our sin. We can have grateful joy. There is a sense of deep security. God wants his people to flourish in the context of unconditional love. That's what blessed is. You're blessed because God has resolved the sin issues and Christ has paid it for you all. You're forgiven and he wants you to live with joy, even in the fact that you are still a sinner. And there's a freedom that comes in this. And let me tell you what else happens. As you let this truth sink into your life, there is an overwhelming sense of amazement that takes place. And you can't help but to worship God. And so a person that understands that you're made right with God by virtue of faith in Christ, on a Sunday morning, you know, like, I don't want to be like, well, I'll see how I feel if I even want to, like, go to church. You want to gather with the redeemed. You want to worship because you realize all that God has done for you. You want your life to be worship unto him because, after all, he's freed you and released you. He has forgiven you and he has given you joy. And friends, that is the greatest discovery in the world. When you realize that God has made a way for you to be right with him by by virtue of you placing your faith in Christ, it leads to forgiveness of sins. You're completely forgiven. God never sees you in your sin, always in his son, and it leads to great joy in life. Friends, that is the greatest discovery of the world. Do you remember in the fall of 2010, It was an event that really just gripped the world. Uh, Billions of people tracked this particular event where we had 33 miners in Chile, and they were locked underneath ground 2,000 years. Remember their main tunnel in which they were going to come out? Totally 
collapsed, and they were encased in the heart of the earth, and they lived, I mean, we could call it, they barely survived. You know how they got by, don't you? They had a, um, two spoonfuls of tuna, a sip of milk, and a little bit of a peach every other day. That's how they lived. And they lived that way for two months. In the meantime, while they're down there, they're totally encased in this rock tomb. The Chilean government, they're bringing all these experts, they're working with NASA. They are trying to figure out how in the world you could rescue these people because it had never been done at this depth for this long a period of time. They established a communication tunnel. They also developed a capsule. It was a 13-foot capsule that they designed. And then they started drilling and trying to drill and to actually get into the heart of this mine to try to rescue these miners. And so after two months, October 13th, 2010, then after they had lowered that capsule, they'd already established communication with the communication tunnel, but then the first of the miners started coming out. Do you remember, remember that scene? There was, like, there was this guy who was a great-grandfather, and he comes out of the mine, and people are just yelling and screaming, and they're just celebrating. I mean, they just couldn't control themselves. There was a guy who was 44 years old, and he was planning his, to get married. And he comes out of the mine. Remember, there was that 19-year-old kid. And he comes out of the mine, and there's just rejoicing and celebrating. And you see, those people realized they absolutely needed help. There was no way out of that tomb, that stone tomb, unless someone broke into their world. They weren't like calling out and saying, hey, I got this figured out. Just give me a better drill. I can get myself out of this fix. They knew. They all had the same story. If I'm going to be rescued out of my death, I got to get inside that capsule because that is the only way I get outside of this world and out of this death. And that was their story. And they all climbed in. And I just have one question. Why is it so hard for us to do the same? Why is it that we think, I'll work my way or I'll earn God's favor? Friends, you need to know this. The world's greatest discovery is that right relationship with God comes only by having faith in his son. You must trust him. There is no other way. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for an amazing passage of scripture. The words just literally leap off the page and we see. And Father, if there is someone here who's never put their faith and trust in Christ, they're trying to clean up their act, they're trying to be good, they're trying to be religious, and they finally understand that you are the one who justifies the ungodly, those who humble themselves before you. Would they simply pray with me and say, God, I I get it, and I turn from my sin and my self-centeredness, and I trust in Jesus. I believe, I believe in him, and I receive his righteousness. Take control of my life. Fill me with your presence. And for all of us who know you, where our hearts thrill with the great news that we are made right with you by virtue of faith, that we would find our hearts worshiping and exalting and our lives and our relationships changed because you've changed us from the inside out. And we worship and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.